hate to break, break your conversations, but um, we're looking at time because, you, truthfully speaking, I have a, a place we have to stop every Sunday. So, if we, the longer you talk, the longer you stay. Anyway, we have been uh, dealing with our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. In the first half, we reviewed that the message is that use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others, which we indicated need to be expanded with three responsibilities. The first responsibility is that you should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. The second responsibility that you should understand that your use of freedom is not absolute. So you need to adjust its application. And so that leads, of course, to the issue of when to use or not to use your freedom in Christ. When will you use it and when you should not? So we consider the first when to use it. You should use your freedom in Christ when enjoying God's provisions that in ordinary use are not in of themselves sinful. And the second, of course, and does not impact your, uh, um, uh, your testimony before unbelievers or believers because they recognize, I mean, because you yourself recognize that God created all things. So in effect, that you use your freedom whenever you see that uh, what you're doing in in of itself is not sinful and because you recognize that you're enjoying God's provisions for you. So we looked at all that and we say really that principle consists of three elements. The first one involves a situation when a person then uh, or what a person enjoys is not sinful because of the command uh, of Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 10 says, Eat anything sold in the meat market. And I try to uh, compare this today because not many of us would think about this passage the way it is. There are people in some cultures that really, they still have to contend with the fact that meat is offered to idols before they are sold in their butcher shops. But uh, for us, I try to use something that uh, uh, many people in this country uh, deal with, which is what I say, buying liquor in a liquor store. That would be an example of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with wine, as long as you're not drunk. Now, but there'll be a time when it'd be wrong to get into a liquor store. That's the point. 
that we're going to be looking at. The second element, of course, when you uh, to use a freedom in Christ involves a situation when a believer's testimony is not in jeopardy, so to say, or you are not impacted by the exercise of your freedom in such a way that will cause people to start wondering if you are a believer. And I emphasize in the first half that one of the most precious things that you have as a believer is your personal testimony. Nothing is more important to you. I mean, I know some of you will not believe that. But that's your most treasured possession. It's your personal testimony in Christ. Because every other thing you have on this planet are going to wither away. But your personal testimony, the impact is what has eternal value. That's why I insist that that's what we should guard more than anything. Our personal testimony in Christ. So, this element, of course, that we talk about is uh, derived from verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 10, where it says, Without raising question of conscience, based on the word conscience, we spent some time going over the doctrine of conscience. Review it a little bit, not in detail, because I did that in whole detail in the study of 1 John. But here I just gave a little synopsis in order to help us deal with what we're dealing with. And I, I showed how the conscience can give you a bit in. It can acquit you. And so I used the example of Joseph and his brothers. Where they sold him for about 22 years. Their conscience keep beating them. So that when they were thrown in prison, they say, Oh, it's because of what we did to our brother. So the conscience can acquit you. It can condemn you. And so that's one of the things that we uh, looked at. And so after uh, dealing with that, we get back, after going through all that, then we got back to, again, the question of what the apostle meant in First Corinthians, uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25, where it says, without raising questions of conscience. And that's really where we stopped before break. Now the meaning and all the function of the conscience as the apostle uses it in our verbal phrase or, or depends on the phrase of conscience. That literally we say the Greek reads because of conscience. So then the question is whose conscience does the apostle mean? And that's where we begin. Now there, there are two possibilities. It is either the conscience of the one who purchases the meat in the meat market or that of another. Now, if the conscience is that of the one who purchases meat from the meat market, then the conscience may urge the person not to buy it if the individual has the knowledge that it is not proper to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. If, however, the person goes ahead to purchase the meat, the person's conscience will condemn the individual. Now that notwithstanding, we believe though that the apostle was concerned with the conscience of the one who purchases meat from meat market, but that's not what he was concerned with, but 
Rather, he was concerned with the conscience of the another person, or either a believer or unbeliever. One considered uh, one who looks at what the other person is doing, the believer who purchases it. So, so we're saying it's not the one that purchases that his conscience is concerned, but the one who observes it. Now, the, there are three reasons for taking this view. The preceding uh, immediate context requires one be concerned about doing good to another. And that's, uh, in this particular case, doing good for another person will involve being concerned about the other person's conscience that would be bothered when the individual sees a believer purchase meat in the meat market. Now if the one that sells meat is an unbeliever who knows that the buyer is a Christian who asks about the nature of the meat but buys it anyway. Not all he goes there and says, I want to know the history of this meat. He says, oh, it was, this came from the temple. He says, okay, just go ahead and give it to me. Anyway, so if that is the case, this person uh, may cause the one who sold it also the meat to question the nature of the faith of the Christian. And so, the unbeliever's conscience is wounded in that there will be a battle in the person's conscience whether Christianity is true or whether it is false. Since a Christian was not bothered by purchasing meat offered to a pagan idol. That's one reason we believe is dealing with the person, other person's conscience, not the believer. Another reason for our interpretation is that the subsequent context, especially verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 10, suggests that the apostle was concerned with the conscience of another. Still, another reason is the use of the definite article the in to describe the conscience. Now such use of the definite article is used in a way probably to refer to what has been previously stated. So the apostle had already written about the conscience of the weak believer that will be hurt by a believer with knowledge or mature believer eating meat offered to idols. As we studied in the, uh, not too long ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 10 to 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 10 through 12. It is for if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their conscience, you sin 
against Christ. So because of the previous reference then, to the conscience of another person, in the 8th chapter of this uh, epistle of 1 Corinthians, we believe that the apostle had in mind the conscience of another person, other than the believer, that wants to know the history of the meat sold in the meat market, when, he, when the apostle wrote the verbal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10.25, we are considering when he says again, without raising questions of conscience. Without raising questions of conscience. Now, in any case, our interpretation that it is a conscience of another person that's involved in the verbal phrase without raising question of conscience implies that the other person's conscience will function in a way to condemn wrongly the one who purchased the meat in the meat market. Now such a person will conclude, of course, wrongly, that the one who bought the meat is not what that individual professes as, as Christian. So his conscience will bother him, telling him that he was wrong in thinking that the one who purchased the meat is a Christian. When really it is true that the person is a Christian, but the, he will not know that simply because of the believer's action where he acted in his freedom. There's nothing wrong with buying the meat. After you've been told this is sacrifice to an idol, he bought it anyway. So that person is wondering, hmm, I thought this is a believer. I thought they, they, don't, they preach against idol. Why is he uh, patronizing idol? See? And that person was saying, huh, maybe Christian is not all he's get up to be. Anyway, so that's what we're dealing with here. So, furthermore though, as we have stated previously, the individual may have struggle in his mind regarding the truth of the Christian faith in comparison to pagan worship. Therefore, when such will be the case, when you be misread about your faith. Now the one who has freedom in Christ, that knows that there is nothing to an idol, will not use the individual's freedom in Christ because of the damage to the Christian faith his action will cause. Again, that goes back to what I've been emphasizing. You, your testimony is so important. The impact you have. Now, you know, in the past, some people have said this to me, and I will not believe them. They say, I, I mean, I, I was just so concerned about this church that I, I couldn't go through what I wanted to do because of the impact it will have on the church. That's great. That means the person is thinking about the testimony. Now, I know, I mean, we're such a small group of people, but we are, whether you believe it or not, we are being watched like a hawk to see you all go and study all this time, blah, blah, blah. They watch you to see if what you actually studied shows up in your life. If it doesn't, they say, mm, I don't know what that going to Bible study does for you. Same thing. So you, if you're careful about that, if you're conscious, you should always reflect what you study in your actions. So it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't say the wrong message to anyone. 
you know, <laughs> you know, good enough. I mean, would I say I don't know it's good or bad enough that they also already say it's a cult. <laughs> don't that include, you know, don't increase that by not being truthful to the, what you hear from the Bible. Anyway, so we are very uh, concerned that uh, we do not do damage to our Christian witness. Now, this declaration, though, brings me back though, to the example of wine that we cited previously. Although there is no sin committed by the believer who buys wine in a liquor store, but if such will cause an unbeliever or even another believer to question the faith of that person who purchases who is a Christian, then it will be unwise to continue to use your freedom. In other words, you don't do that. That is to say, it doesn't mean you are being false. You just know that if I enter into this liquor store and buy wine, the unbeliever sees me and says, Oh, I thought he's a Christian or she's a Christian. I wouldn't do it. You're not being false. You, just, you are now guiding your testimony. And in that way, you stay away from a liquor store, not because liquor store in and of itself is a sin. It's just because of what it will do to your uh, testimony in Christ. So now this advisor will be also being keeping, it's really in keeping with the second element of when to use them, believers' freedom in Christ that involves a situation when the believer's testimony is not impacted by the exercise of such freedom. In other words, that you are free to do something does not mean you should do it if it's going to impact your testimony as a believer. Thus again, when a believer knows that his or her uh, use of freedom will not have negative impact on others, then it is right to exercise the freedom one has in Christ. So this brings us to the third element of this principle that we're looking at. A third element of when to use believers' freedom in Christ involves recognition of the fact that all provisions of life that a believer enjoys, all of them are from the Lord. Now it is this element that is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26. Again, look at it. It says, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. For the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Now, the word is, is not in the Greek, but implied since literally. The Greek reads, this is where the Greek reads, of the Lord, the earth, and its fullness. Of the Lord, the earth, and its fullness. Now this sentence is concerned with reason for use of believers' freedom in enjoyment of the provisions of life because it, it begins with the word for that is translated from a Greek conjunction that generally indicates a causal relation between two statements, whereby the second statement 
gives a reason for or explains the force. And so it is often translated for in our English versions as it is done in majority of our English versions of this verse that we are considering. The conjunction is then used to provide justification or to explain the reason a believer should eat meat purchased from the meat market without questioning how the meat came to be in the butcher's store or in the meat market. Of course, the word for serves another function which is to indicate that the apostle quotes from the Old Testament scriptures we will note later. Apostle Paul understood and practiced what many of us Christians do not do, which is that we should justify whatever position or action we take from the scripture. Justify it. If you can justify it from the scripture, then don't take it. I'm saying that it is not enough to say that we are doing something because that is the way it has always been done. Instead, we should say that we are doing something or following a practice because the scripture authorizes us to do so. Now, it's difficult for us to justify our actions from the scripture if we have very limited knowledge of the scripture. Therefore, to be a biblically uh, Christian requires we endeavor to study the scripture as we are doing now. And of course, in the first half, you remember what I said about Berean, that if you just come here and you listen and you go home, and that's it, you throw away whatever, you're really kidding yourself. You're not, you're, you haven't even started. You may think you, have, you haven't. That you have to go back and check me out. Read, read through the scripture. Everything. Because that's what commended the Bereans. And as we saw in Acts 17 verse 11. Nonetheless, that you need to have your soul saturated with the word. So you can tell, you can justify what you do with your practices or whatever it is. You, you can justify from the uh, scripture. So anyway... The apostle justified the reason a believer should eat any meat purchased from meat market without questioning a source. He says the reason. His justification is based on the existing scripture, since what he wrote is scripture. Thus, the apostle quoted the first sentence in the Septuagint of Psalm. 23 verse 1, but don't write that down yet. He quoted from the Septuagint of Psalm 23 verse 1 that in the English is actually Psalm 24 verse 1. That's why I said didn't write that one down. Now, it's not in the Septuagint, it is uh, Psalm 23 verse 1. But in our English versions, it's actually Psalm 24 verse 1. Psalms 24, verse 1. Psalms 24, verse 1. Septuagint version is 23, verse 1. 
This is what Psalms 24 verse 1 reads, where the apostle quoted. said, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now the sentence of Psalm 24 verse 1 or 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26, the earth is the Lord's, conveys that the earth belongs to the Lord. Now in the original quotation, the word Lord, the original quotation is the Hebrew text, not even the Septuagint. The, the Lord is translated from a Hebrew word Yahweh, I mean that we translate it as Yahweh, the proper name of the God of Israel, by which he identified himself to Moses. Now although the apostle quoted from the Old Testament scripture though, to him the word Lord here refers to Jesus Christ. So after all, it's Jesus Christ who appeared to Moses. Really. That we've studied a long time ago now, in the third chapter of Exodus. Now that aside, there's more to the quotation from Psalm 24 than merely to say that the earth belongs to the Lord. The apostle wanted to convey that the Lord is sovereign over the earth. And that he is the creator of the earth. In effect, the Lord possesses the earth because he created it. He created it. That's why he says, because he created it. Now, so we are saying that his ownership of the earth is simply because he created it. Now, he created it, and so he is sovereign over everything he created. It is this recognition of this truth that the Jewish rabbis taught the importance for God's people to offer thanks to God before one partakes of food, recognizing that God has graciously provided the food. Now, in this teaching of the rabbis, they cited this psalm in the Hebrew text that the Apostle Paul quoted here in 1 Corinthians 10-26 that we're uh, examining. So, as a former rabbi, he knew the truth that God is the source of the meat in the meat market regardless of how the meat must have been understood by the pagans who sold it in the meat market. So to help us really understand that the assertion of the earth belonging to the Lord should be interpreted to mean not only that the supreme God of the universe is sovereign over the earth, but that he created it the Holy Spirit then adds the phrase of Psalm 24 verse 1 or 1 Corinthians 10 26. That phrase when it says, and everything in it. And everything in it. Now the word everything in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26 is translated from a Greek word with several meanings. The word may mean content, content, as that which fills a space, 
so that it is used to describe the baskets that were filled with broken pieces of bread and fish after the Lord Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 men as we read in Mark chapter 6 verse 43. Mark chapter 6 verse 43 Mark chapter 6 verse 43 It reads And the disciples picked up 12 baskets uh, baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. Now I see the phrase of twelve baskets of broken pieces is literally from the Greek reads broken pieces, twelve baskets full. So that our Greek word is really dealing with full of contents here. Yeah? Now so the Greek word can then mean that which is brought to fullness or Completion, hence simply means full member, fullness, or some total. It is in the sense of full number that it is used to describe when the Lord's hardening of Israel at the present time will come to an end. Now this is one of those benefits of doing expositional teaching where we do some words, more or less look at words and go on and so forth. Because it exposes you again to many things. What I'm going to say now, you just now will not get it by just preaching unless you, we did what we're doing for now. Uh, Romans chapter 11 verse 25 tells us about the fullness. <coughs> Romans chapter 11 verse 25. Now, as we know, as of now, Israel is under God's hardening of the heart. That is, they are stubborn towards the gospel message. Now, when I, I keep reminding them, when I say Israel, don't think about those who live in Palestine. Israel, that's just a small portion of Israel. The other ten tribes, and actually ten and a half really, they are all scattered all over the world. The, most of them live in a place where they are hardened. They don't want to respond to the gospel. But it will change. And this is when it will change. This is what it says. Verse 11.25 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Now notice what it said, the full number of Gentiles has come in. What that means is, God in his plan has already determined the number of believers who are coming from Gentile group. When, when that is completed, when the, that number has been fulfilled, then everything, God will begin to end up history. That's just what it is. But that's the whole purpose of Romans 11.25. Anyway, it is in the sense of fullness that the word is used in connection with, with Christ in Colossians 
chapter 2 verse 9 now the tenants were looking at the Greek, the Greek word uh, translated everything in 1 Corinthians 10 26 but that Greek word has all kinds of meaning it's a Greek word uh, pleroma and here for, uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 reads for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form God Christ is God in flesh now another meaning of the Greek word is act of fulfilling specifications so it means something like Fulfilling or fulfillment. Thus it is used for the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 13 verse 10. Romans chapter 13 verse 10. It reads, Romans chapter 13 verse 10 reads, Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is a pleroma. That's the Greek word, pleroma. So if you hear it's translated, love is a fulfillment of the law. Still another meaning of the word is the state of being full, hence means simply fullness. Now this meaning is used by Apostle Paul to describe the correct time for Jesus Christ to be born in this planet in Galatians 4, verse 4. In other words, as we start studying in the past, when we expounded this book, Galatians, Christ came exactly after the, all events that God has set place, to take place, and he came in at the exact time in human history. And, uh, you know, there are a few other things when I look back, and you can see that uh, if Christ came during this, this time today, we'll have a picture of him. Can you imagine that? There will be a picture. Today we don't have a picture. Because, you know, God's intention is not to see what he looks like as a human being. He's God. So, well, that's one of those things. But then he came at a time when there was some kind of peace because of the uh, impact of the Roman uh, Empire. But here, we see where that whole thing being described in Galatians 4, verse 4, when he says, when, when the time has fully come, God sent his son Born of a woman, born under law. Now the clause, when the time had fully come, is more literally, when the fullness of time came. When the fullness of time came. Now in our passage though, the word simply means fullness. That is, everything that is included in a collation and that is held or included in something. So the focus of the apostle in the quotation from Psalm 24 verse 1 
in the word everything is really every created thing on this planet other than humans. When he uses here, everything created other than humans. Because we're dealing with food and so on. Specifically, the apostle is concerned with all the things the Lord had created for our enjoyment on this planet. Yeah, here's the thing that we have to remember. God is not a monster. He wants you to enjoy your life fully on this planet. But to enjoy it fully, he put some great, uh, what I call, real guys around us. To guide us. And some people think, uh, you know, they, some people say, well, he gave Israel the law. And I say, you, if you understand, that's a, a demonstration of God's goodness to them. Say, stay within this boundary. You will enjoy me fully. So, when when we're starting, don't think that when God is demanding this and that from you and uh, and me, it's not because he hates us. It's because he has our good at heart, so to say. So, this is the best thing for you. If you stay within this boundary, you will fully enjoy me. If you go outside it, you will not. So, everything he has put on this planet is for our enjoyment. Now, the reason we are not enjoying them is because, and the reason some of these things are now turned against us is because man sinned. Everything that God created, whether or not, turned against us now because we sinned. I mean, through Adam, and we still stay sin anyway. So, we do know that uh, the Lord wants you and me to enjoy everything He has created. Uh, that's part of what is implied in 1 Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 17. First Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17. Now, as I'm explaining this thing about God in Germany, I, I think about a woman who labored all day to prepare great meal, who has invited some people to come and enjoy it. Do you know how she would be so disappointed, as we use the word disappointed, if no one showed up? But she would be so delighted that whatever recipe she wants to show off or whatever, I don't know, that people came and enjoyed it. That would delight her. So you think about, God has this marvelous meal prepared for us. He just wants us to enjoy it within the boundary. And the reason we're all struggling is we we keep bucking the tiger. In other words, here's the thing. You should go this way. So your life will be very pleasant. And we say, now I want to go this way. And the more we do that, the more we're suffering. Look at what it says. Say, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Not to put their hope in wealth. Which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who, look at that clause, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Think about it. That's my point. God wants you to enjoy your life. But it must be within a boundary. 
How many gave, gave you? I take this. We've, we've paid the horse again a lot of time in First Corinthians chapter 7. Take sex. That's an example. God wants married people to enjoy it. But those who are not in that boundary should not. Because of there's so much problem involved. So much guilt and so all kinds of things. That they have to suffer. Because they are not within the boundary. And so when he says that. Does it mean God doesn't want you know, people to have sex? No. It just means there's a boundary. If you don't go within that boundary. It's going to be painful. Everything associated with it. But if you're not boundary. It becomes enjoyable. So when he says, provides everything for our enjoyment. I just pick that one up because, you know, I hear a lot of young people think that's just awful that, you know, we're told not to blah, blah, blah. But the point is, God is trying to protect you. And if you want to live in misery, down the road, ignore him. As so many of the adults have already found out. Anyway, so everything created for our enjoyment includes meat that is sold in the meat market. The apostle had prior to this verse in the 6th chapter of 1 Timothy indicated that believers could eat any meat they so desire. To what, contrary to what the false teachers were advancing, as we read in First Timothy chapter four, verse four. First Timothy chapter four, verse four. First Timothy chapter four, verse four reads For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Thus, the apostle's argument is that the reason he instructed believers in Corinth to continue to eat meat offered in the meat market without trying to determine its history in terms of where it was slaughtered is because the Lord is the creator and not an idol to whom the sacrifice of a given animal might have been made. So anyway, the principle that we have expanded so far is that you should use your freedom in Christ when enjoying God's provisions that in Ordinary use are not in and of themselves sinful and do not impact your testimony before unbelievers because you recognize that God created all things in this planet. Now, this, of course, is a positive aspect of the second responsibility that you have. As a believer pertaining to the concept of freedom you have in Christ. Which is, that second responsibility again is this. You should understand that your use of freedom 
is not absolute. Now, just before I even finish, just think about it. Part of the problem in this country is people think freedom is absolute for them. It's not. We're sinful because of our sinful nature. Our freedom cannot be absolute. So we have to be curtailed to an extent. But, you know, people say, no, I just do whatever I want to do. And we're seeing it, the result of it. No, it has to be controlled. It has to be curtailed because we are sinful human beings. So that's the point. You should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. So, you need to adjust its application. So this brings us then to the negative aspect of this responsibility. All we have been dealing with is the positive. When to do it, when to use it. Now we get to when not to use it. The negative aspects of the second responsibility that a believer has regarding the concept of freedom in Christ concerns when not to use it, which is when your faith is directly challenged. When your faith is directly challenged, that's when not to use it, as we're going to see. However, the apostle did not immediately state this uh, negative aspect of the, this responsibility, but begins with affirming the freedom to eat meat, not only the one that is offered in the meat market, but one offered to the believer by an unbeliever without raising any uh, question that will affect the conscience of the unbeliever. Thus, the apostle then begins with a conditional clause in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27. That's why he, he says, 1 Corinthians 10, 27, we're studying this. If someone, or if some unbeliever, invites you to a meal, and you want to go, see the conditional statement indicates that the apostle was still thinking generally of believers in Corinth because the word you is in the plural in the Greek, implying that the apostle meant the believers he addressed in verse 25 or believers in general in Corinth. Now those described as unbelievers are Gentiles who do not believe in Christ. Now it is almost certain that because of this subject matter of meat offered to idols, that the apostle would not have included Jewish unbelievers who would certainly not eat or offer to someone meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So even though they are not believers, and they say they have not been regenerated, but because they are Jews, they still will follow the ritual pro- uh, practices of not touching anything offered to idols. Now anyway, the apostle states something that will happen to any believer in Corinth, so that it is not so much a case of if, although we have here if, but really it's a case of when, when. Now this is because people generally 
expect their neighbors or friends to invite them to eat meal in, uh, in their homes or even to invite them to go out to uh, eat dinner in a restaurant that is often in this particular case incorporated into the precincts of some idol temples. In other words, there are, they build some of these idol temples on the side, they attach restaurants. That's what, what I mean. They, they build it, but that, that's restaurants. And the meat, whatever they go to serve, is going to come from that temple. So, it's not if, when, and it's not a question of if, but when. A believer is invited by a neighbor. Thus, it is not something that is far-fetched to be invited to a dinner in a person's home. Anyway, the apostle introduced the condition that must be fulfilled before the command he issued would take place. I would say this because the word if is translated from a Greek particle that may be used as a marker of a condition real, hypothetical, actual, or contrary to fact. Here the apostle uses it to present a real situation that will happen to a believer in Corinth. So, he states what may be reasonably expected of an unbeliever regarding a believer in Corinth. An unbeliever may request the presence of a believer to a meal in his or her home as that is what is meant in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 10.27 when it says some unbeliever invites you to a meal. Although the Greek literally reads if anyone of unbelievers invites you without any mention of meal here but that is implied since the context indicates that food is involved. So anyhow, the apostle states a reality that is expected. A believer who is a neighbor to an unbeliever or walks with an unbeliever is going to be invited to a social gathering such as a meal served in an unbeliever's house or even serve in a restaurant, as we have already stated. However, the situation is not that of food that is served in a restaurant, but in the home of the unbeliever that sends the invitation to the believer. Now, the situation the apostle reference requires a response from a believer who is invited to a meal in a person's house. So the believer could reject or accept the invitation and there will be nothing sinful about his response either way. It will not be a sin if he says, I don't want to come. It will not be a sin if he goes. So it is to convey that this, to convey this, that the apostle states in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 27 when he says, and you want to go. And you want to go. The apostle, with this statement then, implies there is nothing sinful about going to eat in an unbeliever's house. Now this is one of those things that 
makes the Christian faith very intriguing if we live by the Bible. Notice what I just said. There's nothing wrong with going to, to eat in an unbeliever's house. Now, this of course is contrary to the situation where a fellow believer that is not living according to truth invites another believer to eat in his home. Now, as I said, you see, an unbeliever can invite you and it's your right to go. But certain believers can invite you and they will be wrong to go. And that sounds very strange, doesn't it? But that's, that's, that's the dichotomy we see in the Bible because we are in a very unique relationship with God. Now, the apostle had already indicated that a believer should not eat with another believer that is known to be sexually immoral or guilty of sins mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We study this in detail, but we just will more or less just read through it to see one way somebody can invite you, an unbeliever, great, you can go. But a fellow believer who invites you, but they are not living according to truth. No, I'm not going to come. See? That looks like a double standard. It's not. That's how God functions in certain things. So here he reads, verse 9, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Again, I think this is one of those things. Here in this country, we just believe it. We just don't care. We know that this person is living in sin. They are checking up or whatever it is. Yet we are dealing with them as if they are believers. We invite them to their house or whatever it is. But here it says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world. Not one, I'm not talking about unbelievers who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In this case, you have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. That's one who claims to be a Christian. But is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Look at the next thing. With such a man, do not even eat. You see the difference. Now let's be sure we understand this difference. So does a believer who honors an invitation to a meal in the house of an unbeliever has not done anything sinful in light of this passage I just read. Now Christians who are not well informed may complain against a believer who does this. But that is nothing new since that is how the religious individuals in the time of the earthly minister of Jesus Christ, criticized him for honoring invitation to meal in the house of those they describe as sinners. As we read, for example, when Jesus Christ visited Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. In other words, what we're saying is, yeah, some of them say, well, you, can, you go to an unbeliever to eat, but I call you as a believer, you won't come to me. Now, at that point, 
You have to be honest and say, well, the reason is because you're a believer, but you're not living according to truth. This is what the Bible tells me, and that's why I'm not doing it. First, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 5 reads, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, The kills, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can you imagine that? Because they know you shouldn't associate with uh, the, uh, those who they call sinners. Yeah? Now, furthermore, though, the idea that a believer would go to the house of an unbeliever for meal does not contradict the instruction of Exodus chapter 34, verse 15. Now again, what we're doing, we're studying. So we have to look at whatever you know, people may read into the Bible and so uh, that explains things that if not well understood may think it's a contradiction. We're arguing you shouldn't go to a, a believer who lives but not for an unbeliever. And somebody may say, what about this passage in Exodus 34? And I'm trying to say, it, that does not contradict that. It is Exodus 34 verse 15 reads, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. But God is saying, don't do that. So what I've just explained to you seems to contradict that because I say an unbeliever invites you go. But not a fellow believer who lives in certain way. Anyway, it's really believed though that uh, this passage of Exodus is behind the Jewish practice of avoiding eating with Gentiles. Remember when Peter went to Colonus, he said, you know we Gentiles and we Jews are not permitted to eat with Gentiles. And I told him many times, it's not in the scripture directly, but really we believe that part of what is the basis for that practice is what is written in Old Testament pseudograph known as this particular one, Jubilees. The book of Jubilees, chapter 22, verse 16. I'm going to read Jubilees, chapter 22, verse 16. You don't have it. It's not in our Bible, but it's one of the, uh, what we call the uh, pseudograph of the Old Testament. And listen to what it says. Uh, Jubilees, chapter 22, verse 16, reads this way. And you also, my son Jacob, remember my words and keep the commandments of Abraham, your father. Separate yourselves from the Gentiles and do not eat with them and do not perform deeds like theirs and do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. That's why, that they, based on this, we believe that's what that practice came up. Anyway, this aside, that the invitation to a meal by an unbeliever to a believer does not, in principle, violate Exodus 34 verse 15, since the believer knows very well that idols 
are nothing and so should not be worshipped. Beside this kind of thing that is forbidden in Exodus is the situation of joining in worship and partnership with pagans that will expose believers to pagan worship. Now also, since the context indicates that a believer should not eat meat offered to idols, there's no danger though that a believer who accepts dinner invitation from an unbeliever will become involved in idolatry. You're just going to eat. But you have to be careful that you're just going to eat. But it's, you know, since you're going to a person's house, then there's the risk of being involved in idolatry is reduced. So the point is that there's nothing wrong with accepting an invitation from an unbeliever in the individual's home to a meal. Now we should be careful though to recognize that the scripture does not tell us to run away or avoid unbelievers only that they should not be our friends to the point that they can influence us or be in business partnership with them. See, if we run away from having contact with unbelievers, something of course that's impossible, then we will lose the opportunity of giving the gospel to them. That's why, in one case, somebody already knows it's saved, but they're not living according to the truth. You avoid them. But this is an unbeliever. You don't avoid them. Because that's the time you get the opportunity to give them the gospel. So now it's important that we interact with unbelievers. But not allow them to influence our conduct as believers. That's what we have to guard. It doesn't mean you run away from them. But just be sure they're not influencing you. If anything, you should be influencing them. Because they're on the wrong side of God's walking out. So anyway, the apostle recognized that a believer could deny or accept an invitation to a meal, as that is a believer's prerogative. Hence, the sentence that we were looking at in 1 Corinthians 10 to 7 say, and you want to go, and you want to go. Of course, as we will note later, the apostle uh, proceeds, I mean, proceeds with uh, the assumption that a believer will accept such an invitation to share a meal in the home of an unbeliever. So the apostle dealt with the conduct of a believer regarding the meal served to the individual who accepts the invitation to eat a meal in an unbeliever's house. Even though you've accepted, the Bible gives you guidance as to how you should conduct yourself. Now the believer should be respectful of the unbeliever and so should not be rude in questioning the source of the meat that is set before the individual as an instruction of 1 Corinthians 10 27 it says eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience 
Don't be rude. That's really what he's saying. Don't be rude. Food is before you. Don't say, uh, ma'am or sir, uh, where did you get your meat? That may be rude. So don't do that. Well, actually there's a whole lot more to this. Let us you guess. Time is up. And so let me just remind you of the second responsibility, which is you should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. And so you need to adjust its application. We will continue with this in our next study. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here listening or someone listening over the internet. And if you die now, you go straight to hell. Why? Because you're not yet regenerated. But the good thing is, since you are here, or since you are listening, it means God has this great plan for your life. And that plan is something he started in eternity. To provide eternal salvation for you. There was a movement that started in heaven. The Son of God moved from heaven to earth. Taking on a human form. In order to be able to die. And be a lamb of God. That takes away the sins of the world. So he came. Lived among human beings. Preached. Did miracles. Did all kinds of things to prove his claim when he says, I am, the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To prove that. Furthermore, he claimed, he said, I am life. I'm the life and resurrection. Anyone who believes in me, even if he dies, he will still live. To prove all that to be true, he had to be crucified. So they came to arrest him. And he asked them, Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. God spoke. So they all hid the ground. But he gave them permission to arrest him. And so they went and made a mock trial. He was so tortured that according to uh, secular historians, when he came out of that praetorium of torture, he was so disfigured that you couldn't recognize him if you knew him. Yet, nowhere do we read of him even whining, complaining, when they were beating him, doing all kinds of things. But the last three hours on that cross, when my sins and your sins were being judged on the Son of God, was so unbearable that he let out that cry, Eli, Eli, Lamashimakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. He was forsaken that you may spend eternity with God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How? By simple faith in Christ. That's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe that He came to this planet, died, and was raised on the third day, you will receive Forgiveness of sins. That is to say, it doesn't matter how awful your life has been. It doesn't matter how horrible things you have done. If you just trust the fact that he died to pay them all, you 
we receive full pardon and forgiveness of sins. You have a, a clean slate, so to say, with no, your sins never to be brought back by God. So if you believe Him, you will escape God's judgment. On the other hand, if you say, well, I don't want to believe this, my friend, I have to warn you, you're just one step into hell where there is a total misery of the time that no human mind cannot understand now forever. So imagine what it means to be in a place of total darkness, total suffering without anything good from God. My friend, it's a horrible place to escape it by faith in Christ. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to know how and when to utilize the freedom that we have in Christ. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.